0: By the grace of God, the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous and sponsorship, I haven't found it necessary to take a drink or a mood-altering chemical since January 5th of 1971, and for that I'm extremely grateful. Uh, you're here this morning for a workshop on forgiveness. First off, I'd like to ask for your forgiveness for this being at 9 o'clock. wasn't my idea, so <laughs> let's start the slate clean. Uh, but I'm delighted that you're here. I've asked Tom to come up and read the preamble.
1: My name's Tom, and I'm an alcoholic, Hi, Tom. and this is the preamble. Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other that they may solve their common problem and help others to recover from alcoholism. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. There are no dues or fees for
0: AA membership. We are self-supporting through our own contributions. AA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution, does not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorses nor opposes any causes. Our primary purpose is to stay sober and help other alcoholics who achieve sobriety. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. And I uh, also want to mel- welcome any members of Al-Anon or Alatine or Tod or Cat or Pup. I love all of you. I'm glad you're here. I wanted to start off this morning by sharing with you that I do not think I'm an expert on forgiveness. Uh, What I'm here to do is share my experience, strength, and hope with you about what I found about forgiveness over the years uh, that's very important for me. My friend Scott uh, has a wonderful way of opening a meeting, and I've done a little bit with it, but I want to borrow that from him. And I just want us to take a minute, close our eyes, and ask the God of your understanding to come into this meeting. And also, while you got your eyes closed, asking the God of your understanding to come into this meeting, I want you to take a moment, and any anger, hate, or resentment, or hurt, you leave outside the door. One of the reasons I, I like to talk about forgiveness is, is because of this. I believe it's one of the biggest keys to freedom that I found in Alcoholics Anonymous. I, uh, I My life has always been full of resentment. And in the big book, there's uh, on page 64, what they have to say there about resentment is uh, powerful. So I want to start with that. It is plain that a life which includes deep resentment leads only to futility and unhappiness. To the precise extent that we permit these, do we squander the hours that might have been worthwhile. But with the alcoholic whose hope is maintenance and growth, growth of a spiritual experience... This business of resentment is infinitely grave. We found that it is fatal. For when we are harboring such feelings, we shut ourselves off from the sunlight of the spirit. The insanity of alcohol returns and we drink again. And with us, to drink is to die. If we were to live, we had to be free from anger. Now, I don't know about you, but anger was my ID. Anger was the way I lived before I got the Alcoholics Anonymous. Anger was my buffer from society. Anger was what kept you away from hurting me anymore and resenting you anymore, because God knows I already resented you enough. But when you ask me to be free from anger, that's terrifying. It's like giving up sadness and remorse and confusion. It's familiar. You know, that's where I lived every day. Happy, joyous, and free is new territory. Misery, discomfort, and disease oh, that's familiar. You know, that's familiar. It took me a long time to get to understand that this means exactly what it says about anger. I used anger to control you, or at least I thought I did. Uh, I thought I controlled you. I l- used anger to keep you away, and most of all, I used anger to keep me safe. I felt that if I kept you out here, you weren't going to hurt me anymore. I, uh, At the ripe old age of 13, I was arrested by the Iowa Highway Patrol for possess- with the possession of a sawed-off shotgun. It was a double-barrel 12-gauge. I'd already figured out if there was anybody going to be doing the hurting, it'll be me. Thank you very much. And, uh, and I lived that way till I got here. Now, when I got here, and I love it today when people say, I'm working on my anger. <laughs> yes, I'm working on it. It's a process. And the reason I get tickled is because I said that for a long time. I was working on my anger process, feeling it, letting it go, expressing my emotions. And I love that, expressing my emotions, because I had no thought of your feelings, only of mine. It also says that selfishness, self-centeredness is our problem. (laughs) Just thought I'd throw that in. I was speaking in Bowling Green, Kentucky a few years ago. And a guy came up to me and said, Ed, how are you? And I said, fine, how are you? And he said, good. he said, God, I haven't seen you for years. I used to go to meetings with you in Los Angeles. And I said, oh, well, well, nice to see you again. He said, I remember the last meeting I was with you at. And I said, really? And he said, yeah, you knocked the guy out with one punch. Jesus. Shh, don't say that. You know, I'm the spiritual speaker. Shh. <laughs> Thank God it was 20 years ago, but it was true. Now, the reason I share that with you is that was a time when I was working on my anger. I was at a meeting. <laughs> I was at a meeting, and uh, at the meeting in, Lo- in Los Angeles where I was at, it was a 90-minute meeting, 30 minutes participation, coffee break, main speaker. And there is a mutual respect out there in Alcoholics Anonymous. When somebody's participating, you don't talk. Try to pay attention to the speaker. And this guy in front of me is going, and I just tapped him on the shoulder. I said, Excuse me, I can't hear the participation. You're talking a little too loud. He went, Oh, okay. Well, at the coffee break, he turns around to me and says, Don't ever touch me again. And I said, No, no, you don't understand. I'm sorry. Uh, we don't, during the, you know, participation, we try not to talk so we can hear. And I think I'm doing great. And little Alice come over and said, Big Ed, sit down. Big Ed, sit down. I said, Oh, honey, I'm fine just to have a chair. <laughs> I'm working through this with this gentleman. And uh, <laughs> I talked to him a little more. And Alice came back over again and said, Big Ed, sit down. Big Ed, sit down. I said, No, oh, no, honey, I'm fine. Nothing's going. Just... And I turned around and he said, Don't you ever. And I'm nailed. And as he was flying over four rows of chairs, I thought, how am I going to tell my sponsor about this? And I did the right thing. I went over and woke him up and made amends immediately. And I sponsored him for the next five years. True story. Barry O. Yep. Yeah. He said he'd been to A plenty of times, but nobody had ever gotten his attention. So... But I want to preface that with also telling you, we're laughing about it, but it was the most embarrassing thing that ever happened to me in Alcoholics Anonymous. Because with certain rare exceptions, you should never put your hands on anybody in an AA meeting. And what I mean by that is I've been in AA meetings where people were so crazy, they had to be restrained before they hurt themselves or somebody else. But that's when I was working on my anger. That's when I was processing it. And I guess you could say I had a little slip that day. And then shortly after that, I'm going out to uh, Thousand Oaks in California, and I'm going to speak. And uh, anybody been to Southern California in the last ten years? Raise your hand. Okay. You know the drivers out there, the road rage? Isn't it great? I mean, for a hostile recovering alcoholic, it's heaven. <laughs> it really is. You can tell everybody they're number one, cut them off, slam on the brakes. And if you're really lucky, you get out and fight, and it's all fair. And... uh I'm going out to give my spiritual talk in Thousand Oaks, California. And this guy, I may have cut him off without seeing him. I don't know. But he cut me off and slammed on the brakes and flipped me off. And then he did my favorite motion. He went, excellent. He pulled over. I pulled over. He got out of the car. I got out of the car and I grabbed him by his crotch and his shirt and I threw him over his car. And I thought, you know, I really shouldn't be doing this. So I went around and I picked him up and I put him back in his car and I was dusting him off as I was making amends. I really, you know, I'm a member of a 12 step program. We drew, his eyes got this big and he went, Burr. and I thought there's something wrong with this picture. What was wrong with the picture is what I read at the beginning. I never believed was applicable to me. You see, my case was different. I had to work through my anger. I couldn't just surrender it, could I? And the answer is, yes, I could. never wanted to try because it was my defense. It was my defense. Another great defense uh, I've I've used in, uh, in sobriety for a great number of years is sarcasm. God, I could take your legs out from under you like that. I've been around the best. And I always thought that was funny and that was cute. What it is is anger and hostility. What's that have to do with forgiveness? has to do with I've never forgiven anybody especially me and especially you it's the only reason anybody wants to be sarcastic in my opinion and uh, one day I was in a meeting and I asked God I said show me the show me the, the 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 results of my humor and boy he did a young lady came up to me I don't remember her name for the life of me but I remember her eyes her face and she come up and she was happy and laughing and joking and uh Said, uh, said something to me, I don't remember what it was, and I gave her a one-liner sarcastic put-down remark, and I laughed, and I walked away. And I got about five feet away, and her eyes came into my, my, my mind's eye, and I saw the pain that I had inflicted, and tears came to my eyes. You know, all the while I was being funny, I never understood the harm I was doing, and I did that day. You know, along with forgiveness, we got to create an environment where we can be forgiven too. And if I keep doing the same things over and over, it's kind of like going home and telling the family you've changed and keep up the same behavior if you get my drift. You know, I really got to work on that. And when we talk about forgiveness, and if you talk about forgiveness in my case, my first one is God. I hated God. Now let me clear that up. I hated my perception of God had nothing to do with the God I know and love today, but it certainly had everything to do with the God I knew and hated then. I was a collector of ones, I I like to say. I I could walk into a room with 300 people, 299 could turn around and say, Ed, you're the best, we love you. And one could go, jerk. Guess who got my full attention? Mm -hmm. Why am I a jerk? What do you mean I'm a jerk? Why don't you like me? What did I ever do to you? Now, I know you're not this sick, but I got this sick. After a while, the 299 never existed in any area of my life. I'd always find the one. And it always represented something very negative, And that's what I'd take with me. Now, I did that same thing with God. When I was a kid, Mom used to drag us to church. And all ministers have thin blue lips talk like this. they used to look at me and say, you're going to burn in hell, young man. That's what you're going to do. You're going to burn in hell. And I thought, how do you know? I've only been here 20 minutes. In retrospect, that's about probably how long it took them to figure out I was going to burn in hell. But I can remember looking at that preacher, and uh, there was a guy up front. He'd be there every Sunday. Every Sunday, Mom managed to drag us brats to church. I was the youngest of seven children, and I wasn't the best-behaved one, I promise and she'd drag us to church and there'd always be this guy sitting up in the front row and he'd have thin blue lips, look like this. Look so holier than now. You know what I mean. And I thought, you know, he looked like he was having a lot more fun in the bar last night, personally. <laughs> you know? And I don't know who that grump is he's sitting with, but the lady seemed a lot more fun too. Now I know you're not this sick, but I am. I didn't only judge that individual, that pew, that entire church. I judged entire organized religion by my own narrow mind, by the ones I'd collected. And I did that till I was well into my sobriety. I remember collecting ones about God. The biggest one I collected that hurt me the most was when I was 10 years old, I had a cousin that was hit and killed by a car. And she, if there was anybody ever close to God, it was Linda. I mean, she did everything right. She was beautiful. She was an honor student. She just had a full scholarship. She was just brilliant. And she's walking across the street, and a truck hits her, knocks her 200 feet, and kills her. Now, the ones that I picked up at the funeral were this one guy looking at his wife saying, You know, God must have wanted an angel. And I thought, So he hits you with a truck. I'll pass on the angel stuff then. You know, (laughs) sounds like a chump to me. And then I had those other questions, those ones, if you're like me, you collect in life, especially about God. If there's a God, why are there starving children in the world? If there's a God, why does people I love get cancer and die? Why does He rip people out of my life? Because that's what I always heard. God took them. Well, if you believe that all about God, you certainly don't want to be anywhere close to Him. And I gave up praying a long time ago. I figured, I'm not a dummy. I knew that if you prayed, God's got radar and that sent a signal up. And He could zap (laughs) you. So you weren't catching me praying. With rare exception, it was usually in county jail going, Oh God, get me out of this way, would you? And he always did and I always lied and said it was some gift I had or some talent I had or they couldn't pin it on me. When I talk about forgiveness, I had to ask for forgiveness and I had to forgive, forgive the God of my misunderstanding. How can I get a God of my understanding till I get rid of the misunderstandings? And that's what I love about the 12 steps. They say, find a God you're comfortable with. Not one I designed, not one, in fact, they told me, forget everything you've ever been taught, start fresh. And I remember thinking, okay, my God's going to be kind and loving and forgiving. (laughs) How do you like that? They didn't seem to mind at all, you know. Of course, that's the way they are in AA and Al-Anon. You come up with the original idea, they act like everybody else had it before you, you know. (laughs) But the reason that was so foreign to me is that was 180 degrees from anything I'd ever thought about God before. Now, I need to tell you, I was taught the proper things. My mother was one who... I used to think she was nuts because she'd have seven kids dismantling the house. You know, we may need some drinks so the refrigerator might be sold. You know, And she's sitting there reading Scripture as calm as could be. And I thought, this lady's just gone. She's just... Hoo-hoo, you know, and I didn't realize till years later that was her only sense of peace. She understood. She understood that she was powerless over us long before she got the alimony. And you know, in, about forgiveness, a lot of times we talk about parents. It's always interesting to me how we can always dictate to you every bad thing our parents has ever done. We rarely talk about what we did to them. And I don't know about you, but I was a parent abuser. I can remem- remember my mother telling me no, 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 no. And I'd keep on her till she'd always say, For God's sakes, go do what you want, you'll do it anyway, and tears would stream down her face. And I thought, Ha ha, ha broke you. Yet I was going to tell you how my parents didn't treat me right. Isn't that sad? I was so busy forgiving them, or thinking, holding grudges against them, I never took part of my actions and looked at it. And I was a parent abuser. I was one of those in the worst way. I didn't physically abuse my parents, but man, I abused them emotionally. Emotionally. I'll tell you how bad I abused them. I remember I was 28 years old and I'd been sober about eight years at that time. And I had this job. It was a big deal. I was traveling all over the country and uh, all over the world, in fact. I stopped home and I spent the night with mom and her new husband, Claude. And I I get dressed and I'm going to a meeting. And uh, mom says, I'm going out the door. And you know what mom says? Where are you going? And I'm thinking, I haven't been home in eight years. You kick me out of the house at 13. I'm a full-grown man. I'll travel. I go all over the world. I'll go wherever I want, whenever I want, however I want. What I say is to a meeting. And she said the next question. You know what that is? What time are you going to be home? (laughs) And I'm thinking, none of your business. I'm a big boy. I can do what I want, say what I want, go where I want. What I heard my mouth saying is, Mom, I'll be home at 1030. If I'm going to be home later, I'll give you a call. You know what she had the nerve to say? Okay, honey. First time I ever let my mother be a mother. 28 years old. It was always a fight. Her will against mine. Yet I always held a grudge against my mother. You know, if you work these steps, at least the way I've been taught to work them, you'll find out where your errors have been. And that's what we got to work on. And I don't know about you, but the more I work on these steps and I find out where my errors have been, the world don't owe me a whole lot anymore. It used to owe me everything. And it don't owe me much at, at all anymore. And, you know, my brothers and sisters. Uh, I used to hate my brother. My brother uh, did some sexual things with me when I was a kid that I wasn't particularly happy about. God knows I wasn't going to tell anybody. And then he got killed when he was 24 on top of it. And so I hated him even more. Because uh, he, uh, he turned into this wonderful guy. He got into service, came home from his second tour of Vietnam, was home 30 days, was out at Miramar in, in Los Angeles, was on his way to the naval base. He was an a airplane mechanic. And three drunk Marines, who happened to all be brothers, came up over the hill, doing 80 mile an hour, and hit him head on. Killed them all. We buried him December 24th. And then I really felt bad because I hated him so much. I hated him, yet I loved him and I admired him, and I was really conflicted. I was so glad when I took my fourth and fifth step, and I've heard so many of them, that, you know, that's normal procedure for most of us. We have unusual sexual experiences, and it's called experimentation in most cases. And it wasn't anything personal. And the reason it stopped is he realized it wasn't right. But see, if I think that way, and then I give up my ammunition to be angry. I remember when I was molested when I was a kid. There was a next door woman, about 28 years old. I was—I don't know, 10, 12. I've always been big for my age. I was probably 6'1" then. Now I was probably about 5'10". And uh, she molested me. Can we turn off the cell phones, folks? Thanks. Um, She molested me. And I suppose I could go into... And I've suffered from it all my life. I really enjoyed every minute of it. I know that's not politically correct, but then again, I've never been. So I enjoyed every minute of it, and every once in a while, look for her in crowds, you know. I felt guilty about that. Now, was it right? No, I'm not saying that was right. But what I'm saying is, that's the way I felt. And it's okay that I felt that way. I changed my mind today about it, probably. But that's the way I felt then. One of the toughest things I had to do, and one of the things we'll probably be talking about more in this, is forgiveness of self. Because that's the biggest thing. In fact, while I think about it, I've got some pads and ink pens, and we're going to have an ask-it basket. If you've got a particular situation you'd like to ask about, uh, we'd be, I'd be happy to try to answer that from my own experience. Again, not saying I'm an expert, and I know, but uh, I'll do my best to answer any questions you have. If you'd like a pad and a pen, just raise your hand, and some people will come and bring you one. got one over here. Go ahead. Keep, keep your hands up so they can see them. One in back. And then just put the pads down so nobody will know they have a question. They can sneak it without anybody looking. And if you just write your question on there, fold it up, and pass it to this end, we'll have somebody come by with the Ask It Basket. I've worked with a lot of people over the years who have had bad sexual experiences uh, when they were kids. And one of the saddest things I know is it's still happening. And they're all adults, sometimes in their 60s and 70s and 80s. I was down in Texas a while back, and there was a woman came up to me after my talk. And she said, I want to talk to you. And I said, sure. So, what would you like to talk about? She said, I've hated my dad for 56 years, and he's been dead for 20 I understand that. And I said, well, why do you hate him? By her tone, I knew, but she needed to tell me. I said, why do you hate him? She said, he molested me. And I said to her, so you've kept the molestation alive this last 20 years, huh? And she looked at me and she said, well, I've never thought about it that way. And I said, well, he's dead. Why do you still let him own you? You know, why do you still give him that part of your life? And she thought for a minute. She asked me a question. was one of the best questions I've ever been asked. I, I just think it's a great question. And God gave me the answer like that. She said, okay, well, what if I die and go to heaven and he's there? Isn't that a great question? What a great question. And like that, I had the answer. I said, what a wonderful place to run into him. Because if that's where you meet him, he understands the harm he's done to you. He understands the hurt he's caused and he's asked for forgiveness and it's been granted. So if you see him in heaven, then everybody's healed. Now, the tough part about that is then you're given up the right to be angry. And when things like this happen, a lot of times I want to, that's my only defense rage and anger. But the reality of it is they own me then, they own my life. They own moments in the night. When I was 16 years old, I was in Job court in Lincoln, Nebraska, and it was uh, 98% black and the remainder were Chicano and white. So it was a little different structural environment than I was used to. And while I was there, I got drugged and I got gang raped. And I wouldn't talk about that for years and years and years. The first few days, I didn't even know what happened because I woke up and I was groggy and, and my buddy wouldn't talk to me. And I'm, uh, you know, I'm saying what's going on, and I was sore in places I'd never been sore before, and I was bleeding in places I've never bled before, and I'm going. And I finally figured it out after two or three days what had happened, but I'd never mention it to anybody. And there's, thank you. There was always this sad sense of there's something dirty in me. It must have been my long blonde hair. Must have been something like that that caused me, caused them to do that. There must have been something I did. Now, I know there's some women and probably some men in here that understand what I'm talking about. Until I forgave them, they owned me. And I don't even know their names. I don't even know their faces. But they owned me. So when I talk about these things, I don't want you to think I'm being glib and talking about out of my experience. The other thing I need to tell you today is that I don't own me anymore. I can tell a room full of strangers that and I have no emotions about it. Simply because I'm done with it. It serves no purpose in my life except one. That by sharing it, maybe it will help somebody else who's gone through a similar situation and tell you, you too can be free if you want to be. But that's the tough thing about forgiveness. A lot of us don't want to forgive. If I forgive, there'll be a hole in my gut with the wind blowing through. If you got your questions filled out, hold it up. we got a guy coming. I'll hold it up so he can see it. Or, or pass it to this end like I suggested. I lost my place. Now I've got to start all over. My name's Ed and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> But no, when, when, when I talk about that, so I don't want you to think I take this kind of thing lightly. I'm not talking out of school. I've been there. I understand it. I also understand this, that I use the tragic things in my life as an excuse to be, remain a failure. I used it for ages. Oh, if you've had the life I've had, then you'd know. It took a lot for me to get to the point where I said, okay, I want to be free from it. It's supposed to happen by by the third step. There's there's, uh, 62, 63, and I think this is universal. I think this is applicable to uh, every Al-Anon I've met as well as every alcoholic. And it says, selfishness, self-centeredness, that we think is the root of our troubles, Driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity, we step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate. Sometimes they hurt us seemingly without provocation. But invariably, we find that at some point in the past, we made decisions based on self that later put us in a position to be hurt. So our troubles, we think, are basically of our own making. They arise out of ourselves. And the alcoholic is an extreme example of self-run riot, though we usually don't think so. Above everything, we alcoholics must be rid of this selfishness. We must, or it kills us. God makes that possible. And there often seems no way of entirely getting rid of self without his aid. Many of us had moral and philosophical convictions galore, but we could not live up to them even though we would have liked to. And it goes on, I want to skip over here to 63, and just read this little paragraph. When we sincerely took such a position... All sorts of remarkable things followed. We had a new employer being all-powerful. He provided what we needed if we kept close to him and performed his work well. Established on such footing, we became less and less interested in our little plans and designs. More and more, we became interested in seeing what we could contribute to life. As we felt new power flow in, as we enjoyed peace of mind, as we discovered we could face life successfully, as we became conscious of his presence, we began to lose our fear of today, tomorrow and the hereafter, and the sentence I love is we were reborn. But the one sentence I love even more is the one afterward. Do you know what it says? We are now at step 3. How many had that down before you went step 3? I didn't. I didn't. I had no idea. That it's about the way I think, and the way I I live, and the way I operate that causes most of my problems. And that I had to have a spiritual answer, which it says here at the bottom, we had to quit playing God. And, And only by that way am I going to find any freedom. Well, one of the things, the only way I can find freedom is to give up my right to be crazy. And I don't know about you, but I kind of like to be crazy from time to time. I did for a long time in AA. Why do you want to be crazy and goofy? Well, they won't ask you to do anything. (laughs) They know you're not defendable. I like that, you know. Don't ask Ed. He's a flake. Hey, thank you. You know. The other thing was I thought I was incapable. I thought I was incapable because when I came to this program, I was dirty on the inside where soap don't reach. You can talk about it all you want, but I was dirty. I was filthy inside. And if you only knew where I had been, and after I started liking you a little bit, I had to close up even more. Because God knows I didn't want you to find out who I really was and you'd ask me to leave. So I kept my anger and I kept my bitterness and I kept my sickness by choice. Alcoholics are funny people. Most people go through a rut and they come out the other side. Alcoholics like me get into a rut from time to time and start hanging pictures. Well, it's going to be this way forever. That's... <laughs> and all we've got to do is continue the journey, but no more. <laughs> Life sucks, always has. Yeah. And I, I was a 30 to 1 alcoholic. Do you know what I mean by a 30 to 1 alcoholic? I could have 30 good days sober and have one bad one and have that bad one. Like, See, it always sucks, always going to be sucks, it's just terrible <laughs> stuff. And I'd throw out all 31 days. What I've learned is to throw away the one. Instead of the 30. And that's what I've learned with my 299 to the 1's. When I see a 1 from time to time, I will look at it and say, does this 1 have any validity? Because you've heard it time and time again. If you spot it, you got it. You heard that? If you point your finger at somebody else, there's 3 pointing back at yourself. You heard that one? Let me give you some good news this morning you may not know. I didn't know this. That's for the good stuff, too. If you see something in somebody else that touches your heart and lifts you and makes you feel wonderful, the only way you know it can exist is it already exists in you. That's why I understand this book to say deep down inside of us is the deep reality. There and only there can it be found. But I didn't know that then. All I had was my sickness, and if I gave up anger, you're going to eat me alive. If I gave up my anger, you're going to run over me like a truck, you know? Those teachers in school, I can tell you every teacher I hated, there were three of them. Can't tell you one that was kind to me. I went to school a lot longer than three years. That tells you something about the way I think, isn't it? I can tell you what bad's happened. You know what I love is people that I run into, and I'll say, how are you? And they say, oh, terrible. And I say, terrible? Why? I say, well, three years ago my mother died. Two years ago my my dog died. Last year I lost my job. Six months ago my wife looked at me funny. And I said, that's five things. What else has happened? But that's what we do, isn't it? We load up all the ones... And put them on our back. No, oh, I can't go another step. We're the one doing the loading. Stop loading the wants. Start celebrating the good things and forgetting about the bad things. What does that have to do with forgiveness? absolutely everything if I'm not willing to look at the goodness then I'm not willing to be better if I'm not willing to look at the goodness then happy joyous and free I'm not interested and for a long time I wasn't because it sounded so strange I came to AA my brother brought me here for the first time when I was 10 years old and uh, got I remember there's some old guy up here about 20 25 (laughs) some old loser you know and I thought You know, I remember him saying, my name's Fred and I'm an alcoholic. And I thought, good for you, Fred, you know. (laughs) And they lied to me in AA. They said, if you keep drinking and using, you're going to die. And I thought, excellent, where do I sign up? Because I had no interest in living. A lot of people don't understand that. But I was looking for a way out. If you collected all the ones I've collected in life, you wouldn't want to live either. It's too much. It's too painful. Why do I drink? Because when I'm sober, the memories come back of what I've done, what I should have done. How could I do that? And the madness starts and I need something to preserve my sanity. And that's exactly what it says in the book. At times, there'll be times when we drink to preserve our sanity. I had to learn... That in order to forgive, I had to start uh, with me. That's not true. Let me retract that. In order to forgive, I had to watch the way you forgave people. Even me. It's like those people that say, you know, I can't love anybody else till I love myself. That's crap, in my opinion. It's just total crap. You know, sounds good in group, doesn't float here, in my opinion. Because here's why. I adored you before I would even give me the time of day. I adored you because you were kind to me. But I wouldn't give me the time of day. Because I loved you and because you loved me, it convinced me that maybe there's something worth loving here. But I loved long before I loved me. In fact, that's what taught me how to do it. In times today, I talk to a lot of different people come to me about pro- problems, and, uh, and I give them an assignment. It's a tough assignment. I know it's one of the toughest assignments they've ever been given. I said, I want you to start treating yourself as if you actually like you. I want you to start treating yourself with the same love, compassion, and understanding you would a good friend who's going through the exact same circumstances. And inevitably their eyes cross. Huh? <laughs> we don't get that we, we're one of God's kids, too. And if you're still abusing God's kids, you're still a child abuser. And that don't go in the sober program of Alcoholics Anonymous that I know and love. That I've got to treat everybody equal, even me. I've got to start treating me as if I actually do have a purpose, whether I know what it is or not. Why? because you taught me that I'm more than I ever thought I would be. I had a dear friend of mine for years who was a spiritual mentor, Chuck C. and he used to say things to me like, Eddie, what you came here looking for, you're looking with. That'll make your eyes cross. (laughs) Huh? What you came here looking for, you're looking with. Here's what I've come to understand that to be today some 30 years later is that everything I ever wanted to be, I already am. And these 12 steps will open it up so I can be it. I'm a cop fighter, and when I was fighting cops in the street deep inside me, all I was saying was, I just want to get along. Remember Rodney King after the second rise, Can't we all just get along? That's what I was saying in the middle of cop fights. In the middle of family fights. In the middle when I was saying the most terrible things to that ex-wife anybody could ever say. In my heart, I was just saying, can't we just get along? Well, I can't get along until I, until I stopped the abuse. and The abuse was uh, self-abuse. And I'm not talking about self-esteem. I don't like that word. I talk about God-esteem. It talks in our book specifically about a God deep inside of us that will resolve our problems or solve our problems. And And... I believe when I look for the God in you, I'm looking for the God in me. And when I look for the God in me, I'm looking for the God in you. So if I'm being looking for God esteem, I'm lifting everybody up. When I'm looking for self-esteem, it's all about me. Remember the paragraph selfishness and self-centeredness? I would caution you this too. Uh, and I, I don't mean to offend anybody. And I, I think if you hear everything I have to say, it won't be offensive. If you don't, then pray for me. But... I hear people now saying, you know, if it wasn't for my therapist, I couldn't live. And they mean it. That's terrifying to me. It's false dependency. Therapy is a wonderful thing. Therapy is something that can help you a great deal, but it is not to become your God. And therapy does one thing that I've always watched and I've always had a problem with. AA says we've got to get out of self. Therapy says you've got to get into self. It's direct contradiction to what we're trying to do here. Yet I have seen it work very successfully for a lot of people, as long as they kept it in the proper perspective. you still got to have a God, and I would recommend that it not be your therapist. Okay? I would recommend that it be a God that you can believe in that's not of a human nature. Now, I'm not talking about when you're new and your sponsor's your God. You gotta believe in anything you can believe in. And that goes back to what I was talking about when they said you can have your own God. I talk to people, I'm a pastor now, uh, and don't, please don't hold that against me. Uh, you know, it's funny, I'll be talking to people, I'll come to a convention to be talking, and there's guys telling filthy stories, and there's gals just letting it all hang out, And somebody walk by and say, Hi, Ed, how are you? Good, how's the church going? Good, good. How long have you been a minister? And I tell them. and I turn to this same group, and they're all going, "Hmm." Nice to see you, Ann. How are
1: you?
0: I wouldn't say poo-poo if I had a mouthful. No hypocrisy there, thank God. But uh, it's funny. It's funny, uh, you know. But 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 finding a God. People come up to me all the time and say, you know, I'm looking for God. I want to find out who's my God. And I said, that's the simplest thing in the world. But you aren't going to like my answer. And they'll go, okay, tell me. So said, you want to know what your God is? And they said, yeah. And I said, it's what you spend most of your time thinking about. Really? In spite of what you might profess, oh, I'm a Christian... I follow Jesus and just flip off people from time to time.
1: Yeah.
0: Now, I'm not putting them down. I told you I'm a minister. That doesn't mean they're not a Christian, but what it means is they get another higher power temporarily, you know. And those other higher powers are what kept me in trouble before I got sober and after I got sober. What is your God? What do you spend most of your time thinking about? I remember Chuck C., I went up to him one time and I said that, because they said also, you got to pray. Now, I I told you, you know, I thought if you prayed, it was radar and God zapped you. But Chuck said, and other people said, you got to pray. So I said, okay, I'll start praying. And I went up to Chuck one time and I said, Chuck, you know, and what I love about AA and the Elanon Fellowship is after a while, you can ask them those tough questions that you wouldn't be caught dead asking anywhere else, you know. And I said, Chuck, how do you pray? And he said, Eddie, your every thought's a prayer. And I went, uh-oh. <laughs> Did a little edit of what I'd been thinking that morning. Not good. <laughs> but then I, said, then I thought, well, if I'm thinking junk, why don't I change my mind? If I think something bad, why don't I replace it with something that would be good? It's called praying unceasingly. And that's what I do today. Do I do it perfectly? Oh, please, no. But I do it better than I've ever done. And I do it so much better than I used to that I want to keep doing it a day at a time. To make my every thought a prayer. Why? To impress you. It has nothing to do with you. It has to do with God knowing I'm trying my best to do the right thing. And it gives me a tremendous amount of peace inside of me. I, uh, uh, When I was a year sober, my father was murdered. I had just had supper with my dad. And uh, for the first time in my life, he told me that he loved me and he was proud of me. And I wouldn't believe it, you know. I thought, man, uh, he'd never say that to me. Two hours later, I'm getting a call that uh, he was murdered. And I get a call and I go over there to that murder scene and I see that pool of blood. And his glasses all smashed up. And I just felt sad. And I'd been raised 20 years, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And in short order, they told me that somebody came in, opened fire, and shot everybody. And they said, uh, I said, what do I do? And they said, go up to the hospital. Some are alive and some are dead. So I went up there to the hospital, and there was an officer up there that hadn't forgotten my past, even though I was a whole year sober. And he was rude and vulgar and told me to leave. And I left, which was a miracle. Because a year and a half before that, you would have been looking for a new lieutenant because nobody talks to me the way he talked to me. But you'd done your magic on me. I said okay, and I just left. I went and I called the one cop that for the last five years of my drinking, and used and tried to put me in prison, but he was a good cop. And what I mean by that is he could have had me several different ways several different times, but he was an honest cop. He said, I'm going to catch you good, and you're going to go away a long time. And I used to say, everything's fair in love and war, chump. Because, you know, prison isn't all that bad. Because you get three squares a day. Uh, you get a clean bed to sleep in every night. And, uh, you know, you just watch your back, you got a pretty good chance of survival. Much better than on the streets. People say, why do I go back to prison? <laughs> I can tell you, it's safer in a lot of ways. Some ways it's horrifying. Other ways it's safer. They call it institutionalized. I called that officer and he, uh, we formed a search party and we searched the streets all night long because we'd come up with two possibilities. It would be he got shot and wandered outside or they'd taken him as a hostage. And it was one of those nights where we had an ice storm and there was a quarter inch ice over everything. I mean, you couldn't walk. Squad cars were sliding in the parked cars. were falling down. I was looking in garbage cans for my dad, looking under porches. I didn't want to look, but I got to look because he might be there. And if I didn't look and he was there, I'd feel horrible. And I just kept walking. And the only thing that would come to mind all that night was the serenity prayer, one word at a time. I couldn't handle two words at a time, just one. And 8 o'clock the next morning, that officer called me up and said, well, Ed, anybody could have made a mistake. Your old man's up here, why don't you come up and identify your dad's body? So I got in the car and I went up there and I walked into that morgue and I saw my dad laying there with that bullet hole in his face and I reached for a faith I'd been professing. The problem with what I'd been professing is after a certain point after I got sober, after I got to a kind and loving and forgiving God, I started parroting words other people said around Alcoholics Anonymous. And I started professing that they were my experience instead of their words. And when I reached for faith that night, all I came up with is a handful of mush. And I don't know that I've ever been more alone or more isolated or more angry or more hurt in my life. For years, I couldn't explain to you what it felt like. After uh, Oklahoma City on September 11th, you now have a sense of what it feels like. Every emotion could ever hit hits you all at once with the force of a train. And you feel like you're going to be ripped apart in ten thousand pieces. And you want to kill somebody and you want to have somebody hold you so you can cry and you want to scream and you want to laugh and you just want to and it's just maddening. And I'm sitting there in this morgue with nothing. I thought. Opened the door and there were members of Al Anon and AA outside already waiting for me. You see, my God takes care of me. He does for me what I could not do for myself. And everywhere I went there were members of Al-Anon and AA. At the funeral, Father Grubb said something. that gave me one of the keys to the kingdom. One of the keys, certainly, to forgiveness. He said, you know, a lot of people would say Clifford's death is God's will. He said, I don't believe that for one minute. He said, I believe God created human beings. Gave them a free will. Those human beings chose to do this act. And now it's God's will. And it was like the weight of the world fell off my shoulders. You mean, uh, God didn't kill Dad because of my bad behavior? No. Five young men who were angry and very prejudiced killed my father. And their family suffered, and my family suffered. Why are there starving children in the world? It's real simple. We're too busy upgrading our cars and our homes to send a few bucks to save them. Sorry, that's the truth. No guilt trip, just the facts. There's more than enough money and food in this world. We just ain't sharing it. Don't blame God. Anymore. Yes? Okay. Speak up. Thank you. Thanks for letting me know. I really appreciate that. When did you stop not hearing? (laughs) No, I mean, when did you start not hearing? Has it been a while? Okay. But thank you. I really appreciate that. One of the things I do is when I really get emotional involved, I drop my voice. So you have my permission. If I do that again, throw something at me. Preferably raise your hand. But if a lot of you don't want to be free from anger, throw something at me, okay? (laughs) But when he told me that, and I, I used to think, if there's a God, why are all these people dying of cancer? It's really simple. We pollute everything we touch and one blame everybody else. God's crying. He created this whole deal. He's watching what his kids are doing to each other. He's not pleased about it. Don't blame God anymore. I started believing from that moment to this very moment that if it isn't good, it isn't God. That every good and perfect gift that my God gives me comes down from heaven and He don't change every six seconds like shifting shadows. Boy, what a freedom that was. And when I got a God like that, guess what? He can probably even forgive me too. Boy, there's something. And I remember I had to go to the murder trial. And there was a young guy sitting there, and I had to go because I identified my dad's body and and, uh, uh, his uh, billfold when they found it. And this guy was sitting there, and I'm thinking, you know, give me five minutes with him. We don't need a trial. And uh, people in AA told me that I had to behave myself, that I might be the only example of AA anybody ever seen. So I went to court, and I behaved myself. First time I'd ever been in court and behaved myself. That was showtime for me, baby. You know, that's where you created your rep. And uh, I behaved myself, and I answered questions, and I left, and they convicted all those guys. Now we're going to take a short little break, for everybody to take a little uh, break and get some coffee. And when we come back, I'm going to tell you how the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and A Kind and Loving God could change my heart to the point of where that guy, that very guy I saw in prison that day 27 years later I was able to go and get him out of prison out of a life sentence and have him come and live with me so he can start fresh. That's forgiveness. See you in about 15 minutes. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links.